This is exactly right. It's 1943 in the Kingdom of Bulgaria. As the Second World War rages, King Boris dies suddenly and every nation is a suspect. The Butterfly King premieres March the 21st on Exactly Right. It's a cruel tale of a doomed royal dynasty. Somewhere, the truth is out there. Listen to The Butterfly King on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. This story contains adult content and language. Listener discretion is advised. And now, from the files of the Texas Rangers, the case called Three Victims. I've been thinking about it. If Henry was lying, there's only one answer I can see. He's the one who killed his parents. What could ever make a boy hate his folks enough to shoot him down in cold blood? Hello, Henry. Hello, Ranger. Sure. Henry, your mother and father took you out of school last year, didn't they? Yeah. My father wanted me to work. I shouldn't have left school. I owe it to the world to finish my education. What were you studying? Physics. Everybody in the university admired me. The professors said that I'd be the world's most brilliant scientist someday. It seemed almost inevitable that Howard Pearson's case would be adapted into one of those old dramatic radio stories from the 1950s. This 1952 radio show was called Tales of the Texas Rangers, and the episode was titled Three Victims. Our lab proved that the bullet he found in the tree up there had to be shot from where we're standing right now. What's that mean? That nobody shot at you. I don't know what you're doing. You killed your parents, Henry, now didn't you? Didn't you, Henry? Yeah, I killed them. I had to do it. They, They took me out of school. That's not how the real case of the murdered judge and his wife would end. After nine hours of pressure, Howard Pearson finally snapped. Will and Lena Pearson's youngest child told police in Austin, Texas, that he had killed his parents in April of 1935. The judge was tired of slipping into debt, so he had refused to pay tuition for the 21-year-old's engineering classes at the University of Texas. And now Howard Pearson would unravel the story of how it all happened. Every cold detail. In some cases, investigators never get a confession, no matter how many hours they interrogate suspects. That wasn't the problem here. The DA knew that he really had to sort out a motive in order for the jury to convict Howard Pearson. Juries want motives. Don't we all? I mean, I've spent hours and hours on cases trying to understand why one person kills another person. The DA didn't believe Howard's mental illness defense, so he ordered detectives to interrogate Howard about his real motive. As he sat in the room with investigators, Howard explained that his plan began about five months earlier, in November of 1934. The 21-year-old was working at an East Texas oil field in a difficult job that covered him daily in sweat and dirt. That was the first place where he had been hired but he would be laid off within a year. As Howard hauled around machinery and avoided other workers, 
he seethed. He thought about how much easier his life would be if his parents were dead. He was absolutely miserable in the hot oil fields. He wanted to be back in school with other students. And most of all, he wanted to finally fulfill his destiny of being a world-famous scientist. His father, the judge, was standing in his way. The longer that Howard was away from Austin and his life as a college student, the more unstable he was becoming. There were clear signs that he was beginning to unravel. Howard was lonely. He told a longtime friend that he was unhappy with his sex life. And maybe that's not so unusual for a young man who had been working with just men for months. But soon, his comments about his life became darker. And Howard said that he had made a decision. Howard told the friend, I'm contemplating murder. The friend was shocked as Howard said, guess who? Your father, the friend joked. Yes, my father, Howard replied. So a side note, the friend told his own father the whole story, and he's the one who told the police. He asked his son to not be publicly identified. That's why we don't hear his name. Author Gary Laverne says Howard seemed to have several different motives. The only way he could ever become this great scientist that he was convinced he was destined to be would be to murder his father and inherit the money so that he could finance his own education. But he was lucid enough to explain that he had to murder his mother too because if he murdered only his father, the mother would get the money and not him. So delusional and calculating at the same time. It's one of the most baffling things in all of criminal justice. The friend had heard all of this. That definitely would have alarmed me, but then I didn't know Howard Pearson. At best, he was quirky. And no one seemed to take him seriously. He had never been violent. At least, no one knew if he had ever been violent. For a long time, the friend didn't tell anyone, even his own father, for a simple reason. Well, the friend didn't go to the police until after the murders. Because, you know, a lot of people knew Howard. And a lot of people knew Howard was, quote-unquote, not right. They thought he was strange. But the idea that he would murder his parents is not something anybody considered remotely possible. After their first conversation, Howard's friends said that he began talking a lot about killing his own father, just about every time they saw each other. And his friend thought something else was odd. Howard routinely called his father the judge to his friend, just like he did with the police. He talked a lot about feeling slighted by his parents. He griped about Will Pearson's willingness to educate Bill and Alice, but not him. Howard complained, he does not want me to be educated. He doesn't think I'm capable of it. He said that the judge promised to send him back to UT if he would work in East Texas and grow physically stronger. But now, it sounded like his father was not planning to honor that promise at all. And that would be a fatal mistake. The friend listened as Howard ranted about both of his parents. Remember how I had wondered why two robbers would kill Lena Pearson so brutally? Her body had been run over by a car. 
Howard very calmly explained to his friend that he would have to kill his mother too, or she would receive all of the insurance money. The judge had thousands of dollars in life insurance. And if Lena were no longer alive, the funds would be split between their three children. And Howard could use that money to go back to UT. And of course, this wouldn't be the first time that children have killed their parents for money. Lyle and Eric Menendez were both convicted in 1996 of murdering their wealthy parents in California in 1989. Police were suspicious when the brothers went on a spending spree. So money was a motivator, even though Lyle and Eric later claimed that they were the victims of domestic violence. It was clear that they had benefited financially from the deaths of their parents. Perhaps this was also Howard's motive. Back in 1935, Howard was certain that he could make the murder that he was planning look like a robbery. So he started to make a plan. But first, he needed a weapon. Right about the time he had these conversations with this friend about how, you know, if he killed his father, he had to kill his mother too and so forth. He was on a rig just south of Beaumont when it was time for him to come home to Austin. And instead of coming straight home from Beaumont, he went to Galveston, where he bought a a pistol and took that pistol back home with him to Austin. In the meantime, Howard's complaints about his job on the oil field continued. His duties were difficult and tedious. It might drive him mad if he had to stay there too much longer. And his father seemed to have no sympathy. The judge kept emphasizing the importance of real-world experience of hard work at a challenging job using his hands. One day, Howard pulled something from his pocket to show his friend, an old 38 caliber pistol, the same weapon he bought in Galveston using a fake name more than five months earlier. That's how long he had been thinking about this, five months. Howard had considered other crimes before, He had planned to rob a bank, but feared he'd get caught. Now, what he really had in mind was a higher-stakes crime with a very personal motivation and completely different plans. They were all very violent. He could bludgeon his parents to death and then pretend that their fatal injuries were a result of a car accident. He thought about poisoning them, but it would be easily detected during an autopsy. And then he finally settled on shooting them and blaming highway robbers. All of these terrible details. And yet the friends still did nothing because Howard just seemed so harmless. How could that have happened? His friend assumed that all of this was actually one of Howard's jokes. He was afraid that if he did go to the police and report the conversations, that all this would backfire. Howard would make him look like a fool. The plans just seemed improbable and crazy. And the friend wasn't the only person who didn't take Howard seriously. Everyone who had contact with Howard would be asked in a very impolite way, how could you not have seen that this was going to happen? You know, you're a professor. If one of your students were to do that, it would not surprise me at all that you wouldn't be attacked as someone who should have known. You should have connected those dots. So Gary might be right, and I would probably think back to every conversation with my student. I think any professor would. 
On that April evening in 1935, just hours after he'd finally carried out his deadly plan and while he sat in the hospital bed, Howard slowly, matter-of-factly detailed to investigators exactly what happened that night. We know some of this already. It started at dusk, sometime after dinner. Howard had asked his parents to join him on a drive to the hill country. He had discovered a genuine Native American artifact in the woods, a grindstone used to grind corn. Journalist Michael Barnes says it would have been very difficult to find this particular trail. Clearly, Howard had gone there before to stake it out. There was a road along that area to get to the Bull Creek area, and so there would have been a road out there. It was growing darker in the woods and very quiet. Lena and Will had both been raised in rural towns, so the setting was likely pretty familiar, maybe even comforting. Howard told his parents that they would have to walk a bit to find the grindstone, and they agreed. And when he got out, the judge got out, and the mother apparently followed. Howard watched them both walk a few hundred yards ahead of him. They were completely unaware of what was about to happen. Howard walked over to them from behind. He raised the gun. He killed his mother first by shooting her through the head. And his statement was that he killed her first because she was closer to him. Lena Pearson screamed as she felt the pain and collapsed. She wasn't physically strong. She couldn't fight back. Howard fired at his mother again, hitting her in the neck and the thigh. The father, who had been a little bit further away, apparently had walked down away from the car a little bit, turned around and said, what are you doing? And then he shot his father. He shot the judge in the hand and the shoulder. Howard walked over to his parents. He told the police, after they were both down, I was still afraid that they might not be dead, so I shot them through the temple. What a horrible admission. Howard was so calm as he retold this story, so cold and so detailed. He dragged their bodies closer to the road, and then Howard did something really repulsive, frankly. And then he drug his mother a short distance and then ran over her body with his car. Lena Pearson's limp body lay in the deep tire tracks made by her own car. The woods were still quiet as Howard surveyed the area. There was still work to be done to conceal the crime, but Howard had planned this well. He picked up the pistol in his right hand and turned it toward his left forearm. And before leaving the wooded area, apparently he decided that he needed an alibi or an explanation of some sort, so he shot himself in the arm. I'm not sure how anyone could do that. I can't imagine that turning a gun on himself was easy for him to intentionally hurt himself when he didn't have a history of self-harm. But it was all part of his plan. Howard took his father's wallet and watch, along with his mother's handbag, and placed them in the passenger seat of the car. He took one last look at his parents' bodies as they lay in their own blood. It was slowly dripping onto the dirt of the trail. 
He drove about two miles away before tossing the items and his pistol into some bushes. So that was how he murdered his parents, according to Howard Pearson. And he told the story of gunning down Will and Lena and then driving over his mother's body as if he were recalling a trip to the grocer. It was unemotional. Austin police were stunned. And I'm actually a little confused. So Howard needed to kill his mother because he wouldn't receive the insurance money if he didn't. But why would he run her down with a car? I think in his mind, he had to make it so brutal that people wouldn't suspect him. Again, I think he was conscious of the fact that no one would suspect him or believe that he could even do such a thing. I think he was conscious of that. And if you don't think that he's capable of murdering his parents, you surely don't think he's going to get in a car and run over her corpse. So I, I think he, he intended it to be as brutal uh, and as outlandish as possible. That actually makes sense to me. He was that calculating. Still, running over his mother seemed so excessive. Howard was sullen by the time he came to the end of his confession. He was pale even more than usual. The detectives asked him, why did you do it? He replied, revenge. They suppressed me all my life. And now I'm even. Although Howard denied that there had ever been a struggle, the police suspected that he and his father had fought before Howard finally managed to shoot him. The judge was 64 years old and physically weak from chronic illness, so he was probably overpowered easily. Howard also refused to admit that his share of the life insurance money was a motive. He insisted that he was angry at his father's refusal to allow him to return to college. This wasn't about money. The police loaded Howard back into their car and followed his directions to where he hid the wallet, the handbag, and the pistol. Howard dug into the brush and handed them over. He then strolled around the crime scene. He pointed to where his parents had died as investigators took notes. And then Howard spent the rest of the night in the Travis County Jail while prosecutors settled on criminal charges. He was held without bond and indicted the following morning on murder charges. The next day, he calmly retold the story to newspaper reporters as he posed for pictures. Howard had never received much attention before. So this was all startling to him. He never looked comfortable, even as he casually walked to court. I guess who would be comfortable if you were facing murder charges? His brother and sister sat down with the district attorney. Bill and Alice pleaded with the DA to not charge him with murder. They said that Howard wasn't normally a violent man, just mentally unbalanced, and everyone knew it. Putting him on trial would be almost cruel. Prison was the wrong place for someone like Howard Pearson. Even though their brother had killed their parents, Bill and Alice were steadfast in his defense. Howard was clearly delusional. He always had been. The judge and his mother might have derailed his career plans, but his parents still loved him and supported him. And no, he did not care about the life insurance money. Obviously, he was insane. There was no other explanation. How could the district attorney not see that? For his entire life, they knew something was wrong. 
maybe they decided in order to support Howard that they should not provide evidence of his sanity or of something other than the fact that something was was not right. The district attorney listened closely to Bill and Alice. He carefully thumbed through the case file and all of those horrible details about the murder of a judge and his wife, pillars of the community. He reviewed the timeline and he considered how Howard's plans began almost six months before the murder. And the DA came to a very clear conclusion. Howard Pearson might have been odd. He might have been unstable. But he was not insane. At least not from a legal standpoint. Oliver Perkins is Howard's relative and a retired attorney. He says it's clear to him that this was a premeditated crime. It was planned and deliberate, and it's not like a momentary psychotic break. But Oliver also knows it's not often that simple. Some prosecutors believe that someone who is insane cannot plan a crime. They're incapable of premeditation. But mental health experts say that's not true. We'll talk more about that soon. The defense had two choices. Howard could plead not guilty and face a murder trial, or he could plead insanity and ask for a jury trial. Howard and his team chose the last option. He would claim that he was insane when he murdered his parents. The presiding judge ordered a competency hearing to determine if Howard could stand trial. A battery of physicians examined him in jail. But the prevailing opinion came from Dr. Wooten, who had known Howard his whole life. That particular physician knew the family, He knew Howard and Howard's history, and he had conversations with the brother and the sister. And I think they all agreed that Howard wasn't responsible for this and that he should not be sent to prison. And responsible is a hard term to interpret in a murder case like this one. Linda Frost is a former law school professor and an author. She says that evaluating someone for competency should be comprehensive because all patients are different. People look at details of offenses and say, well, that showed planning, that showed sanity, but there often are psychotic motives that are wrapped up in things, or there can be, maybe not often, but there can be. And that's what can be hard to really untangle. And that's where you need the evaluators who have a good sense of what could be going on medically and what might fit together and what doesn't make sense. Krista Chacona is a defense attorney in Austin, Texas, who handles quite a lot of competency cases, including a high-profile murder case that we'll hear about later. She says that deciding on competency is a skill that is very nuanced. You have to get the right information. You have to find that information. And you can't have, you know, a 15-minute conversation with someone and and, necess- and they may be ranting and raving and incompetent, bouncing off the walls— That doesn't mean that they were insane once you sort through all that, but they could be insane and you don't know that until you dig and you need to talk to people who knew them and saw them and heard the things that they were saying because, yeah, not everybody's walking around advertising what's going on in their head. Chicona often works with special prosecutor Michelle Haley. She's assigned to work on these cases involving mental health on behalf of the state. She says that well-trained evaluators make well-founded recommendations. Is there a gray area here or is it pretty black and white? 
For me, it's pretty black and white because I'm familiar with all of the experts in the field. And so I trust them. I trust their judgment. So typically, I don't ever contest a competency issue. Now, a lot of the trial court prosecutors will because they just they don't understand the nuances of mental illness and the competency and the insanity laws. And Krista Chacona says that DAs can be suspicious about suspects who plead insanity. So are there people who get away with murder by playing the insane card? I mean, I, I think that would be foolish to think that there's never anybody that does it, but I think it is so much harder and it happens so very rarely, which I think is just such a travesty, you know, that our, that our statute here is so restrictive and the burden's on us to prove. It's like less than 10% try to use the insanity defense here and less than 1% are successful is a really high bar. But that bar might have been a bit lower in 1935, only because there just hadn't been that much research done on mental health yet. At the time, there were no psychiatric drugs and no medical treatments that were proven to be effective. Dr. Wooten was the evaluator who had diagnosed Howard with dementia precox. He told the jury that Howard should be sent to a mental institution. And Dr. Wooten ticked off a list of incidents that probably should have been red flags to just about anyone around Howard. The doctor repeated Howard's belief that the Pearsons were not his real parents. He thought he was as important as Jesus Christ. He thought that he would build a machine that would put all other machines out of business. Howard wasn't specific about what kind of machine that was. He believed that he would discover a way for people to live 2,000 years, but he only wanted to live a few centuries. He thought that he was born to save the world. He thought he could communicate with aliens. And then he said something really odd. He wanted all French people to be banished to Mars. I thought that last claim was pretty wild, but then I remembered Howard's horrible year in France where he was bullied by the other school children, and it made a little more sense. None of the physicians who examined Howard thought he was competent to stand trial, and Bill and Alice were compelling on the stand. The sorrow of losing their parents was clear, but so was their genuine concern for their brother. Chacona says that some families become almost desensitized to the behavior. I met with a family the other day, and I said, it's amazing what you can become accustomed to. So they're kind of telling me about their daily routine and the things they do, their, their son is unmedicated and just the things they do every day to try to keep him safe, to keep them safe and what becomes part of their normal routine that you would be like, wow, I, I don't know how, how you do that. How is that normal, you know? The prosecutor argued that Howard knew the difference between right and wrong and that he deliberately covered up the crime. The DA said, I grant you that Howard Pearson didn't act like a normal person. But he's not insane. He has a criminal mind. The prosecutor said Howard deserved the electric chair. But there's a big difference between a criminal mind and a mind mired in mental illness. Nikki Hewn can expand on that. She's a doctoral student at Texas Tech University where she works on research related to both substance abuse and mental health. But she's also personally struggled for many years with something called schizoaffective disorder. Patients with schizoaffective disorder experience a combination of schizophrenia symptoms with either depression or mania. So what that means is like I experience these intense mood, a lot of depression symptoms, on, sometimes on top of psychosis. 
when that's occurring at the same time, I guess it could get scary, more so for others at that time because I'm kind of out of it and don't realize the serious nature of it. There's a difference between that diagnosis and schizophrenia. Schizophrenics usually have psychotic symptoms like delusions, hallucinations, talking incoherently, and definitely agitation. The person with schizophrenia usually isn't aware of his or her behavior. Defense attorney Krista Chacona says that someone with either of those psychotic disorders can be set off by stressors. Are we often able to point to something that happened that triggers all of this? I don't know about often. I think certainly there are some times because, you know, stress often exacerbates, I mean, everything that we're feeling. You know, in several of my cases, there will be, there is some stressor, but not always. You know, I have others and it's just like a much slower break. Hune says that her symptoms are really frightening, both to her and the people around her. If I may be hearing something that is not my own voice telling me to kill myself and I'm depressed, that could be really problematic. And Howard's relative, Gray Pearson, says that Howard might have been expressing some common symptoms of schizophrenia from a very early age. My father told me that Howard would not eat with everybody else. He had to go eat by himself. And I just remembered that. For some reason, he did not like to be around people when he was eating. And I don't know why, but apparently that was something my father mentioned and I totally had forgotten. Nikki Hune says that food was a trigger for her too. But I was so freaked out about what was in my food and what I was eating. Um, and not in the in the aspect of having, I, I do not have an eating disorder, but in the aspect of this paranoia and leading into psychosis. But Hune has managed to survive and also thrive. She brings her personal experience to help educate people about her disorder. I will say it took me time. It took me years because this doesn't go away, right? For me, this, this at least for me, this doesn't go away. Whereas in addiction recovery, I could be clean, right? And, and I might have other symptoms in addiction recovery, but it won't be using drugs if I'm in an abstinence-based program. But with mental health stuff, if I ignore it, it's, there's no abstinence, right? And so that acceptance was crucial for me even getting better. And apparently, Howard has not been the only Pearson to struggle with mental illness. And that shouldn't be surprising, considering the statistics. Every family likely has someone with mental illness. The National Institute of Mental Health finds that nearly one out of five Americans currently experience mental illness. And that's for the people who have been diagnosed. So that statistic is probably too low. Gray Pearson says that his family, like most families, has struggled with those issues. In his family, symptoms were masked by more positive qualities like career ambition. I think the family background part of this is what's so interesting is that you all seem to be really successful. Not being immodest, because I don't know if it applies to me, but, but high intelligence has also been. And also there has been a trait, a little bit of schizophrenia mental issues. I'm not saying that all of us have it, but uh, it has been something that some in the family have had. Very successful, very smart, but just a little bit, some that had some mental issues. That would be more accurate. The Pearsons tended to be very successful people, so mental illness has been dismissed as an eccentricity. You can't argue convincingly to a lot of people that Howard's harmless. Well, no. Look at what he did to his mother and his father. You can't argue he's harmless, and yet, what do you do with him? Do you send him to a place 
with other people who are deemed harmless and put those people in jeopardy? Or do you send him to a place where everyone is dangerous and thereby make his situation worse? They chose option two. After two hours, the jury found Howard Pearson to be insane. The men on the panel decided that he was incapable of standing trial until the time came that he regained his sanity. So, if Howard were to be cured, so to speak, they concluded that he could then go to trial for killing his parents. But it was the legal system, not the doctors, that would decide Howard's fate. What most people don't understand is that insanity is not a mental illness. Insanity is determined not by doctors. Insanity is determined by a jury or a judge. And that's based on definitions written by politicians. The state legislature decides who's insane and who's not. Physicians don't ultimately make that decision at the beginning of the trial. No matter how many doctors get on a stand and say this person is mentally ill and so forth, there is a difference between mental illness and insanity. And this is established, you know, several hundred years ago. Most people adopt McNaughton or some variation of it. Laverne is talking about the McNaughton rules on how we establish insanity. I talk about this story in my first book. Daniel McNaughton was a woodworker. And in 1843, he assassinated a personal secretary to the British prime minister in London as he walked toward Downing Street. The Crown prosecutor admitted that McNaughton did suffer from partial insanity. But he also said that McNaughton knew the difference between right and wrong when he shot the victim. The defense put medical experts on the stand that insisted McNaughton had no control over his actions. The jury came back quickly. McNaughton was found to be suffering from paranoid delusions. They returned a verdict of not guilty on the ground of insanity. Sound familiar? Daniel McNaughton was released to a lunatic asylum, and Howard Pearson was admitted to the Austin State Hospital. Howard had escaped murder charges, for now. If he were ever released, he would likely be tried for killing his parents, but that might never happen. Rather than die in the electric chair, Howard might just spend his life in a mental hospital. Bill Allison is a retired criminal law professor at the University of Texas. I talked with him about Howard's story, how he was sent to a mental institution. I told him that it seemed to me like Howard had gotten away with murder. He didn't commit the murder because at the time of the killing, he didn't. What the judge said was he didn't have the requisite mental capacity to commit the act of murder. That might be what happened in court, But Gray Pearson says the family called it murder, but it didn't change how they felt about Howard. Do you think anyone in the family thought or does think, if you really think about it, that Howard got away with murder? Of course, you know, he committed murder, but I I think the family understands that he was sick, that there was a mental issue, and not fully responsible for his actions. I don't sense any, any hatred or resentment towards Howard. I never have sensed that from anybody. Gary Laverne says that Howard Pearson's family saved him. Howard was very lucky to have had a brother and sister that he had. He was very lucky to have had the medical attention that he got first when he was arrested. That sounds like Howard was given special treatment because he came from a place of privilege. 
He wasn't even fingerprinted because of who his father was, despite being a murder suspect. I mean, the first hint of medical diagnosis was Howard shouldn't be sent to jail. Now, there's a, there's a lot of people out there who would have been arrested, who had done that to their parents, and the first thing that would have happened was they would be slapped in, in a jail cell. But that didn't happen to Howard because Howard's daddy was a judge. That family, while they were not filthy rich, they nonetheless had resources to get good lawyers and sympathetic judges. There's a lot of people out there who would have been sent to jail, convicted, sent to prison, or put in the electric chair. So Howard Pearson was hospitalized. Bill and Alice returned to their homes, and the nation largely forgot about the murdered judge and his wife. Now, I don't get to say this a lot, but the most interesting part of the story isn't what happened during the murders. It's what came afterward. Oliver Perkins and I are trying to figure out my next point of contact. I know what happened up until the trial, but what happens with Howard after is still a mystery. He kept talking about revenge, and it sounds like all of his rantings were just delusions, fantasies that were a symptom of his illness. Did he hurt someone in prison? Did he ever get out? I need a lot more information, and Oliver has a good idea. The Bledsoe's are going to be your best bet. The Bledsoe's are Alice's two sons. And, of course, you've got the names of Bill, Howard's brother. You've got the names of his kids from that uh, obituary. So you might be able to track them down. Okay, who else? Well, did you talk to Marsha in Corpus? No, not yet. I'm not having any luck. I don't, I don't think I have the right number. Have you talked to her sisters? No. What do you think they might know? All of them used to be in Corpus. I used to refer to them as the Corpus girls. It's uh, Pat, uh, who I think is short for Patricia. I think Karen's the youngest. And all three of those girls are daughters of Marshall Pearson. Be very careful. Marshall and William occur so often in the family tree. You got to be real careful. I'll also try Ann Pearson, who was Howard's niece, Bill's daughter. Okay. But I'm going to try the Corpus Christi girls first. Hey, Karen, thank you for returning my phone call. You had a chance to listen to the voicemail I left? Yes, I did. Your dad was Marshall, is that right? That's correct. Marshall was working with Howard, right, in the oil fields at the time. Right. You know, we I just didn't know if y'all had any kind of an impression from your dad or, or your mom about what he might have been like during that time period. I did not know Howard at all. I don't know if I was born after the Howard thing came about. I was born in 45. Have you talked to Marsh or to Pat? On the next episode of Tenfold More Wicked. Kate, the only thing I can say is that I never heard anything negative and any mention of Will and Lena, it was always in at least a positive tone. But I don't remember anybody saying specifically anything good about them either. This is the Pearson residence. Please leave a message after the beep. Hi, Ms. Pearson. My name is Kate Dawson, and Gray Pearson in Texas suggested I give you a call. I'm doing a story on... Hello? 
Oh, hi. How are you? I'm fine. So I'm doing a story about uh, Howard Pearson's case, and Gray Pearson suggested I give you a call. Well, I don't know who Gray Pearson is, but I do know Howard Pearson. If you love true crime, please check out my books, American Sherlock and Death in the Air. They're available anywhere you buy books. This has been an Exactly Right and Tenfold More Media production. Producers Jason Whaling and Laura Sobel. Sound designer Eric Friend. Composer Curtis Heath. Artwork Nick Toga. Executive producers Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Clips at the beginning of the episode are from the radio series Tales of the Texas Rangers from the episode titled Three Victims. Follow us on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. If you're an advertiser interested in advertising on our show, go to midroll.com slash ads. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. So please listen, subscribe, leave us a review on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, or wherever you get your podcasts.